This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Authentically Embracing the Gospel. In the first half, Scott Swafford shares his address, Both Feet Forward. Then in the second half, Carrie P. Jenkins speaks on A Solemn Obligation. My father was a builder of big buildings, some well-known. So when I returned from two years in Japan and wanted summer work, I ended up 40 feet down at the bottom of an air conditioning shaft, stripping forms from freshly poured concrete. My captive co-worker Chuck made the mistake of asking why I would waste two valuable years like that. I'm sure he had no idea what he was in for. And I unleashed my abundance of missionary zeal. At some point in our discussion, I heard a noise overhead and saw the familiar silhouette of my father leaning over the shaft. What he said was a surprise. Chuck, I don't know what he's saying down there, but I believe it's true. Now get back to work. <laughs> it is for me the most treasured testimony my father bore. But I want to hope we can surpass that level of communication today. I don't want you going back to class thinking, I don't know what he was saying down there, but I believe it's true. I want instead to persuade you to rethink the way you communicate to others your feelings about your connections to heaven and the amazing blessing of what you know and what you feel. Why persuade? Because no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. And I hold no position that grants me that kind of dominion over you anyway, but only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. I want to persuade you to consider another perspective that will help you follow the counsel of an apostle. Elder David Bednar stood here in August and asked us to sweep the earth with a flood of truth and righteousness in our online efforts. It was historic in many ways. I was so delighted. His first qualification for this effort was simple, and I quote, We are disciples and our messages should be authentic. A person or product that is not authentic is false, fake, and fraudulent. Our messages should be truthful, honest, and accurate. We should not exaggerate, embellish, or pretend to be something or someone we are not. Following his counsel to be authentic will be more difficult for us as central culture Mormons because we have for decades desired to honor the Lord by always putting our best foot forward. Look down at your feet, if you will. The problem is nearly every mortal has two feet, and most require both of those feet to stand properly. Over the past ten years, I have regularly had the punishment and privilege of watching through a one-way mirror as focus groups discuss Mormons. Not just any people, but those who were selected for these sessions by their beliefs and actions that they were likely to respond to the message of the Restoration. These are people who believe in Christ who have their prayers answered and who all believe their relationships will endure beyond death even if their particular faith doesn't teach that. Quite possibly, they are those who are kept from a knowledge of the truth only because they know not where to find it. And yet these amazing people of faith, when asked to characterize us, said in no particular order, polygamous, sexist, racist, exclusionary. Now the first impulse in that situation was always to leap into the other room and correct the misperception. Well, we had all agreed not to, and the experience of the professionals was that it would have quickly disintegrated into, no, we're not, yes, you are, no, we're not, etc. So we calmed ourselves and went on. Now, there are points of history and evidence that can at least be argued for these erroneous perceptions, 
and there has been an exceptionally authentic response by late of the Church to issues of polygamy, race, and gender. But the most troubling for me is not those perceptions. It is the widespread opinion that we exclude others from our faith, our communities, our sociality, and our love. How can that be an accurate viewpoint? As we probe deeper into the experiences that generated this perception, we bumped into a very understandable cultural phenomenon. The first section of the Doctrine and Covenants identifies us as the only true and living Church upon the face of the whole earth. I believe that statement and embrace it. If we take it as a reminder that we are the grateful recipients of the blessings of access to all revealed priesthood keys and ongoing revelation from heaven to guide our actions, then it is a humbling and awe-inspiring statement of our faith. Often, though, particularly in testimony meeting, it is used as a contrastive statement of pride, exclusion, and misunderstanding, as if we are more righteous than others, as if we can monopolize the truth, and as if being chosen makes us more beloved. The first African-American family moved into my neighborhood in 1965. My mother, as was her custom, baked fresh bread and went to visit the new family. I peered out the window for her return, anxiously awaiting her report. To her great credit, the fact that they were black didn't make it into the conversation at all. With genuine pleasure, she exclaimed that they seemed like such nice people for being non-members. In my suburban East Side Salt Lake neighborhood, our social circle was nearly all active or what we called Jack Mormons, as at the time we had the handful of Catholics or Presbyterians kept pretty much within polite waving distance. We had daily interaction with those, we had little daily interaction with those not of our faith, and my mother's surprise at their goodness affected me. I spent my youth thinking heaven was for Mormons, and all the other believers were destined for some other place. I told my Greek and Baptist schoolmates as much. I was a little Zoramite, climbing Ramiumptum in my primary classes and praying, and again we thank thee, O God, that we are a chosen and holy people, as if to add, and the rest of your children are not. Imagine my awakening when my work over the last 30 years in 50 countries has acquainted me with thousands of our Heavenly Father's beloved children who are amazing and faithful souls. In Egypt, I worked for months with Ahmed Sami, the producer of Death on the Nile. He was a devoted Muslim, father, and a truly ethical businessman in a country ripe with corruption at its cultural and political root. Without even knowing the word, he voluntarily tithed himself to the benefit of the poor. He spoke of many miracles and prayers answered. He often reminded me of Christ's injunction to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. If I ever make it to the entry queue for the celestial kingdom, I expect him to be standing up there ahead, well in front of me, with the season ticket holders. While in Egypt, we honored the promise of the Church had made not to proselyte, but I have no worry for the state of his soul. Why? Because apostles remind us often of the Lord's statement in 2 Nephi 27 that I can do my own work. And the last two sections of the Doctrine and Covenants reiterate that he has a plan for the redemption and exaltation of those who have died without the gospel and its ordinances. All of God's children need to have an opportunity to hear the gospel, exercise their agency, and have access to the plan of salvation, or God would cease to be God. He lets us serve in our sacred responsibility as missionaries both for our mortal trial and learning and to gather his elect to hear his voice and doubtless have particular service to render here and hereafter. So as we seek authenticity, it would serve us to remember that all men are children of our Heavenly Father and all fall short of the glory of God. 
Since the reality of our own weakness and continual striving to overcome our failings is obvious to all who observe us, trust me, they find us most authentic when we acknowledge that trailing foot as well and not just champion the best foot forward, pretending we have two right feet. I like this quote. I love the man that swears a stream as long as my arm, yet deals justice to his neighbors and mercifully deals his substance to the poor than the smooth-faced hypocrite. I do not want you to think I am very righteous, for I am not. There was one good man, and his name was Jesus. Though it sounds like a focus group participant talking, it was actually Joseph Smith who said those words. He understood the value of acknowledging what I like to call the state of striving in any effort to persuade, lest we hold ourselves to a standard with our protestations or our posts, tweets, or pinnings that any observer could call pride in self rather than love for God and man. Please don't assume that I'm calling for a disclosure of all of our personal failings anytime we desire to rejoice or a mandatory review of our sins as a preface to our posts. We've all seen too much information online and cringed. I'm simply asking that we make sure the pictures we present of ourselves have two feet, walking toward God, reflecting His glory, and not our own. This has ramifications for the way we communicate to all those who share our values but not our membership. I was taught in primary to interact with those not of our faith with what we called the golden questions. What do you know about the Mormon Church? Would you like to know more? If we applied that advice in today's social climate, would it work? Imagine it on a personal interactive basis. Let's say I boarded a plane and sat next to a fellow traveler and declared, Hi, I'm Scott Swafford. What do you know about me? Would you like to know more? <laughs> I'm pretty sure a call button would be pressed and I'd be relocated if not removed from the plane. The most authentic way to enter a gospel discussion is to seek to understand first. I've experimented with the following approach when seated on a plane. Good morning. I like those shoes. The dialogue is now underway on a positive note. Eventually it gets to, is this flight outbound or returning home for you? Inevitably they will ask where home is, and I'm lucky then admitting that I'm from Utah is like setting a timer on a predictable response. Three, two, one, are you Mormon? Now I could launch into my memorized first discussion, but it's in Japanese. So instead I usually reply, yes, and you? I then pay genuine attention to a lot of information about this new friend, their thoughts on faith, their struggles, and their current frame of mind. Now I'm ready for the Spirit to direct the next move. Am I encouraging timidity or restraint in opening our mouths? No. Am I celebrating weakness? Yes. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Clearly, weakness and the recognition of it, the humility that follows, and the application of faith in Christ is essential to our eternal progression. It's also the key to authenticity. During the I'm a Mormon research, we learned that the most powerful myth-dispelling force was the personal exposure to the lives of our members. More powerful than any argument, first-hand knowledge was the secret weapon. When we would meet someone who held inaccurate beliefs, we'd say, Do you know any Mormons? The answer is usually something like, Yes, one of our vendors is a Mormon. Well, does he have two wives? No. Does he behave in a discriminatory way toward women or people of different backgrounds? No. Has he invited you to participate socially in his life? Yes, we've been out to dinner. So how do you explain this contradiction between your beliefs and your experience? 
well, he must be an exception. We learned that they needed five or ten exceptions in their life before they would adjust their misperception of Latter-day Saints. Thus, the profiles on Mormon.org, thousands of virtual, relatable, striving followers of Christ. After those experiences provided me a valuable clue what makes us relevant to others, I came to BYU-TV. We knew from our research that good writing, good drama, and powerful television draws at its most inspired level on the capability of flawed characters, whether real or imagined, to accomplish amazing things. That is our story as humans. The Atonement takes the small and simple things that we are and makes them heirs to all that the Father hath. We began as a team to craft such shows, striving to see the good in the world amidst all of our human flaws. Now, if I judge our success by the letters I receive from some well-meaning saints, we've ruined the channel. We tried to take their comments into consideration and then proceed carefully with our approved direction. The most popular show when I arrived was a quilting show called Fonz and Porter's Love of Quilting. The week I arrived, it pulled 8,700 households. Now, following the counsel of our leaders and with an amazing creative and distribution team in place, some of our shows can see a million-plus viewers in a week and 63 million digital views in a year. Many of those views are by those not of our faith, as we hear from thousands of them whose expectations were violated in the positive. It is our weakness and our need to overcome sin that binds us to the Savior. From Luke 18, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Often bitter and gnashing voices focus on some personal weakness of church leaders, both general and local, in an attempt to justify refusal to follow their counsel. I find these protestations, whether historical or current, have the opposite effect on me. If these leaders can accomplish such virtuous, lovely things as human and therefore flawed characters, then there is hope for me, a sinner. I have myself witnessed members of the ruling councils of this Church make decisions that in no way aligned with what I knew their personal opinions to be because the Spirit of the Lord had wrought upon them otherwise. What more joyous witness can there be than knowing heaven is in charge? Those not of our faith resonate with the message of the gospel best when it is presented by messengers who jump in with both feet and acknowledge their striving state. Authenticity also implies an attempt to speak in a situational language our audience can understand. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to role-play with English-speaking MTC missionaries. I chose to play a husband who just lost his wife. I decided to go easy on them, and after welcoming them to my home, I spoke of my grief at the loss of my imaginary spouse and my sincere need to understand her whereabouts. I felt I'd given them an obvious approach to take. Man, I thought to myself, I wish I'd seen such a golden investigator on my mission. Their fresh young faces looked up at me, opened their scriptures, and began to enthusiastically launch into what was their most comfortable vehicle, the story of the Restoration. In the spring in 1820 in upstate New York, I stopped them. Now, elders, listen to what I just asked and see if there is a more comforting approach. 
I repeated my deep yearning for knowledge about the state of the soul after death. With even brighter smiles, they began again in the spring of 1820 in upstate New York. And this time, I just let them talk. You see, to them, the story of the Restoration is so central, so relevant, that it was, of course, the answer. We would all agree that the words of Alma about the Resurrection I wanted them to quote, or the messages about the sealing power I was hoping for, would not be ours without the Prophet Joseph. But they were just a little too ready to use their new MTC squirt guns to squirt the gospel on me and feel they had done their job. I wanted them to take responsibility for the absorption of that message as well. Their testimony of Joseph Smith would be critical to my understanding as an investigator. But it was out of place in messaging hierarchy. If they had caught my situational questions and affirmed that their message had the answer I was seeking about my dear departed, I would have been happy to wade through any lesson on the Restoration, even in questionable Finnish or Tagalog or Swahili. Likewise, as we strive for authenticity, we need to listen and construct a message hierarchy. The Savior could easily have taught, love your enemies, by a simple pronouncement, and did so on occasion. He also used the much more engaging, a man went from Jerusalem down to Jericho and was fallen on by thieves. Now that's a terrific open, of course belonging to the Good Samaritan parable. Both approaches eventually arrive at the same place, love your enemies. But one follows a messaging strategy that I've seen work countless times from behind the one-way mirrors of my career. I'm aware that by advocating a change in our approach to the world, I have perhaps created another should. And sad reality is that you should can become the enemy of I would. I saw an effective illustration of this principle once. The presenter stood a life-side cutout of a Latter-day Saint in front of the room and began to place post-it notes on it to represent every commandment, responsibility, expectation, program, activity, area of emphasis, and worthy endeavor we are repeatedly asked to apply ourselves to. The image of the person was quickly obliterated and overwhelmed. I feel that way often. The only way for me to find a way forward is to remember that the Savior found a way to make it all simple, as he was so adept at doing. He took the mass of instructions, policies, commandments, and traditions and made them only two. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. When I need a gut check in the decision-making process, I don't always have with me the laminated card they handed out at the last leadership meeting. Instead, I weigh my options against those two commandments. It is clear that Jesus, for whom the answer to nearly all questions is love, surely loves us all. He loves the professor who came up with a perfectly good lesson plan 30 years ago, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. He loves the ineffective politician. He loves the guy who asks you out once and then never calls again. He loves the roommate who steals your milk. He loves people who know him by names we cannot pronounce and who chant to him or dance for him or who kneel five times a day on little rugs or who touch a mezuzah at their comings and goings. He loves the primitive Amazon natives who enact familiar rituals, the origin of which they do not understand, but I did. He even loves Pharisees and hypocrites, although, to be honest, he was sort of tough on them during his mortal ministry. That love is the answer 
to any procedural questions because it dictates through the Spirit how we approach this specific child of God, this specific audience. It is different for each encounter. And following that pure love of Christ under the direction of the Spirit is the ultimate communications trump card. It is divinely authentic. And now I leave you with three guidelines for putting both feet forward. Feel free to laminate these for your wallet or just put them on your forehead with a sticky note. Number one, if your virtues must be extolled, it is always better to have a third party do it. Really. Number two, doing it yourself. If doing it yourself is unavoidable, start by expressing love and genuine admiration for your audience. What follows is then less likely to be offensive. Number three, when in doubt, follow dear Nephi. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord in showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about by the temptations and sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. Brothers and sisters, I am a wretched man. My thoughts careen recklessly in and out of the appropriate path. My family, my co-workers, and my bosses will attest that I am often irreverent and annoying. When I served as bishop, a sister told me in an interview that I was not only glib, which I had to look up, <laughs> but that I also had perhaps the shortest attention span on the planet. Sometimes I think there is no hope. It is not God who makes me feel that way in the middle of the night. Weakness and humility lead to hopefulness, not helplessness. But when I calm myself, I know there is indeed a bright hope, because I know in whom I have trusted. I believe that if I just keep striving, just keep repenting, and don't stop trying to love as he loved, then someday, maybe after a millennium of practice, I will be whole because of his atoning sacrifice for me. Today, here in this gathering, I feel his love for you, though you are all also wretched in some way. I know his love will save us, and I know that about you because I know in whom you have trusted. I testify that you will go on with both feet forward, the best foot and the real foot, to do mighty things in his name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is authentically embracing the gospel. We've just heard from Scott Swafford. After the break, we'll return with Carrie P. Jenkins for a solemn obligation. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is authentically embracing the gospel. Next is Carrie P. Jenkins, assistant to the President for University Communications at the time of this address, titled A Solemn Obligation. I would like to look at how we as saints, faithful, true, and bold, might increase our efforts to profess our faith. On a rather cold, rainy day many years ago, I found myself in a meeting over a difficult issue. Waiting outside this meeting was what appeared to be an army of reporters. To say that I was a bit unnerved by their presence is an understatement. I was new to the Office of University Communications, having spent 12 years with BYU Magazine, 
and was still trying to adjust to the media scrutiny that accompanies a breaking story. As the meeting concluded, someone asked the question, who is going to talk to all of those reporters? The person in charge responded, Carrie is. And with that, everyone got up and laughed. Do you remember how Moses felt when the Lord asked him to represent the Israelites before Pharaoh? In my own small way, I think I caught a glimpse of it on that rainy day. I too wanted to cry out, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, but I am slow of speech and of slow tongue. But as the Lord beckoned Moses to therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, I felt the Lord's gentle push in response to my hasty prayer. And so I walked out that door confident in the message I needed to deliver, even if I was not confident as the messenger. I faced the reporters, and all went well until the final question, when they asked if they could interview BYU students about the honor code. I knew I could not say no, even though I really wanted to just handpick a few students who I knew would respond in a predictable and positive way. Instead, I responded, absolutely, talk to anyone you like. That night, as I waited for the 10 o'clock news to air, my heart was racing. I knew what I had said, but what I didn't know was how the students had responded. I wondered if they would challenge and negate everything I had said. As I watched the various news reports and those random students, students just like you, talk about their feelings and belief in the honor code, my once racing heart swelled with pride. I realized that while in this instance I had been asked to be the official spokesperson for BYU, the most important spokespeople were you, the students. It was your voices people would remember. It was your voices that turned a rather negative news story into a positive one. Today, I would like to talk about what it means to be a spokesperson at BYU and in the Kingdom of God, a role that each one of us plays. The incident that I described above is not unique. In fact, it happens on an almost daily basis. Perhaps you saw this recent story in the Salt Lake Tribune written by Shanika Sykes and Todd Hollingshead. BYU students proud of stone-cold sober rank. In Shanika and Todd's story, you will notice that my comment is quite buried, but your comments carry the story. Anthony Strike, one of the students, quoted, sums things up when he says, Students here don't have to worry about their lifestyle choices being challenged by their peers. I am proud to go to a school that gets that ranking. Now I would ask you, who is the spokesperson in this article? As a student, aren't you far more interested in hearing comments from your fellow students than in hearing from me? There is a common theory in public relations that the most important source or spokesperson is the source closest to you. We are far less likely to believe a company's official spokesperson than we are a trusted brother or even a cousin twice removed who works for that same company. Even if this individual just started his or her job two days ago and washes the windows. Although there can be obvious and even detrimental errors in this mode of thinking, we all succumb to it. As students, faculty, and staff at BYU who hold dear the principles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we must accept that for someone, and perhaps for a great many, we are their closest source to BYU and to the Church. Their opinions rest on our words and our actions. Shakespeare reminded us that we are all players on the world stage. 
Yet at times we don't realize that the curtain has been drawn and eyes are focused on us. We are not aware that the plot, based on our own deeds, has turned. We are not aware that our fellow actors are taking their cues from us and that the critics in the audience are frantically writing. After all, we may say, I have just a bit part. Elder Jeffrey Holland has said that we are making our appearance on the stage of mortality in the greatest dispensation of the gospel ever given to mankind, and we need to make the most of it. He said, think of the remarkable age in which we live. Think of the economic and educational, scientific and spiritual blessings we have that no other era or people in the history of the world have ever had. And then consider the responsibility we have to live worthily in our moment in time. President Gordon B. Hinckley recounts how he was once asked, If you do not use the cross, what is the symbol of your religion? I replied, says President Hinckley, that the lives of our people must become the most meaningful expression of our faith and, in fact, therefore, the symbol of our worship. President Hinckley goes on to say, As Christ's followers, we cannot do a mean or shoddy or ungracious thing without tarnishing His image, nor can we do a good and gracious and generous act without burnishing more brightly the symbol of Him whose name we have taken upon ourselves. And so our lives must become a meaningful expression, the symbol of our declaration of our testimony of the living Christ, the eternal Son of the living God. Recognizing that we all serve as spokespersons in one way or another, I would like to share with you six principles that guide me in my work. These basic and simple principles are a combination of public relations theory, sound professional advice from leaders in the industry, common sense, and answers to my own personal prayers. Number one, do not be afraid. I have a little ritual that I sometimes do before rather intimidating interviews. I snap my fingers and I breathe into my hands. Before an interview with ESPN last August, I unconsciously started this ritual. What are you doing? asked my coworker. I'm proving that I'm not afraid, I said, knowing that if, as has been rumored, reporters can smell fear, they can certainly feel it in a cold handshake. The truth is, fear is a natural reaction when we are called upon to leave our comfort zone. For many of us, standing up and speaking out is not easy. Look at Esther of the Old Testament, who was called upon to serve as a spokesperson for her people. Was she afraid? Most definitely. Did she not call upon her people to fast and pray for her in what was the most difficult assignment of her life? And yet, in that process, did she not glean the strength she somehow needed to say, If I perish, I perish? Few of us will ever face such a risk. However, we do face the possibility of ridicule, humiliation, dishonor, and even withdrawal of friendship. Yet, more often than not, when we act appropriately and put our faith in the Lord, our result is the same as Esther's. A student, Dixie Kolditz, reiterated this lesson to me when she refused to back down during a very aggressive interview. A filmmaker had asked to interview BYU students about their beliefs in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The producer and his crew were charming, and I was looking forward to the interviews with the three students selected. Dixie, a young convert from South Africa, was to be their final interview. As the camera started rolling, however, the reporter's charm quickly turned to hostility. Our two returned missionaries did just fine, bending off every question with solid answers. 
But Dixie had just come into the church. She had no such experience with this manner of questioning, and I felt responsible for her vulnerability. Dixie, I said, you don't have to do this. In fact, you shouldn't do this. No, she said, I should. And with that, she proved to be a powerful interviewee, basing her comments on the 13 Articles of Faith, principles she had not only memorized but understood on a deep and personal level. Looking at Esther and Dixie during their individual moments in the spotlight, one would see them as fearless and without question bold and confident. What gave these women, who I am quite sure also suffered from freezing hands, their self-assurance? As Esther entered the King's Court, knowing she was breaking all protocol, even the law, what calmed her nerves? Esther herself gave us the answer. Her answer is my second principle. Seek and recognize the Lord's support. Go, Esther said, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also, my maidens, will fast likewise, and so will go. I go unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's mettle, or some would say her self-confidence, was far more than a strong personality. It was the direct result of putting her trust, faith, and reliance in the Lord. A short time before his 24th birthday, President Heber J. Grant accepted a call by President John Taylor to preside over the Twilla Stake. He said the appointment came as a great surprise to him, and he had many feelings of inadequacy, particularly in the area of public speaking. At his first speaking assignment, he said, I remember preaching and telling everything I could think of and some of it over twice, and I ran out of ideas in seven minutes and a half by the watch. The next Sunday, I did not do any better. I ran out of ideas in six or seven minutes. The next Sunday, I did the same. This continued. There are no accounts to indicate whether the saints in Twila were really that disappointed, but obviously President Grant felt great distress. And then in the little town of Vernon, he said, I got up to make my little speech of five, six, or seven minutes, and I talked for 45 minutes with as much freedom and as much of the Spirit of the Lord as I have ever enjoyed in preaching the gospel during the 40 years that have passed since then. I could not restrain the tears of gratitude which I shed that night as I knelt down and thanked God for the rich outpouring of His Holy Spirit. His story, however, does not end there. You need to hear about the next Sunday. I went to Grantsville, the largest war in the Twila Stake of Zion, he explained, and I approached the Lord with much the same attitude as Oliver Cowdery when he told the Lord I want to translate. But failing, he was later told he did not study it out, and he did not pray about it, and he did not do his share. I told the Lord I would like to talk again to the saints, as I had done in Vernon. I got up and I talked for five minutes, and I perspired as freely, I believe, as if I had been dipped in a creek, and I ran out of ideas completely. I made as complete a fizzle, so to speak, of my talk as a mortal could make. President Grant later wrote of his humble prayers that followed that meeting. He wrote, I asked God to forgive me for not remembering that men could not preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with power, with force, and with inspiration only as they are blessed with power which comes from God. Looking back at this incident probably wasn't easy for President Grant. I think he shared his shame and pain over the fizzle of that talk for only one reason, to help us learn that even a young man who is worthy at 24 to serve as a state president 
can fall victim to his own pride. We have been promised that the Lord will give us the strength we need if we humble ourselves before him. James counseled, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. There is another lesson President Grant so vividly illustrates in his story, and this is my third principle. Do your share. Prepare yourself. The number one rule any spokesperson will give you is never walk into an interview unprepared. Far better to admit your ignorance than to stumble around saying nothing or, worse yet, say something incorrect. The problem for me and for you is that reporters and people in general rarely ask a question and then allow us a few days or even hours to prepare an answer. For this reason, our preparation must come before the questioning begins. During the 2002 Olympic Winter Games in Salt Lake City, the lifetime of preparation our students had done paid off in immense proportions. In this small three-week window of opportunity, BYU students interacted with journalists from around the world, sipping kiwi lemonade with them at family home evenings, sitting in advanced language classes, and training with them in our athletic facilities. Many of these journalists spoke little or no English and relied on the translation abilities of our students. Over and over again, we watched the amazed faces of these international journalists as they interviewed students in their native tongues. U.S. media outlets were also impressed by our students. On President's Day 2002, a holiday for BYU, I got a call from David Lamb of the Los Angeles Times. He was at TGI Fridays in Provo and asked if I would mind answering a few questions about BYU. It was his first day away from the hubbub of official Olympic activity, and his editor had given him permission to do two stories on cities outside of Salt Lake. He had chosen Wendover and Provo. <laughs> he made it clear that his story was not about BYU and that he only wanted a paragraph about the university. I tried to get him to go to our media hosting center, but he refused. As his questioning continued, I finally convinced him to make the trip to campus. There he could obtain a handy media kit that would answer all of his questions, thus actually saving him time, I said. On duty that day were BYU students Shalisa Wooden and Julie Harris, both returned missionaries who between them spoke five languages. David spent two hours on campus. He took a campus tour, watched BYU's hosting video, and talked with students everywhere he went, particularly with Shalisa and Julie. In parting, he told one of my co-workers, this has to be one of the most cosmopolitan universities in the nation. Here is the story that resulted from that visit. It ran with three color pictures, all featuring BYU students, and lauded Provo for its friendliness, which isn't by accident, darn it. In paragraph after paragraph, David described BYU with its clean-cut enrollment that comes from all 50 states and 110 countries. He talked about how many students have lived abroad and how many are fluent in a second language. He applauded the large number of students serving as volunteers for the Games. He wrote at the Honor Code and quoted Julius, saying, It's empowering, not restricting. While our office prepares for media visitors, it was not the press kits that made David's story so positive. It was the preparation of Julie and Shalisa and all the other students David interviewed who changed his thinking. Preparation that could not happen in the few minutes David drove up the hill to BYU. This story reflects more than anything else the personal study and experience of our students who live the gospel of Jesus Christ on a daily basis. 
I have no doubt that Mr. Lamb, as a seasoned journalist, quickly recognized that his interviewees were not just parroting answers prepared for them, but that they were speaking from their souls. This type of open communication was exactly what we hoped to see taking place in our media center, knowing that if reporters could talk to real live students, they would be far more believing of what we had to say. Students like Julie and Shalisa were encouraged to share their experiences and insights. In so doing, we asked only that they be cautious not to overstep the bounds of their authority. All of us, in serving as spokespersons, have boundaries. Do not go beyond the bounds of your own knowledge, understanding, and authority is my fourth point. Julie and Shalisa didn't pretend to be the president of BYU or the dean of a certain college. They didn't need to. They simply spoke as students at BYU. When Aaron was asked to serve as Moses' spokesperson, he set an example for us all. Victor L. Ludlow explains there is no evidence that he ever sought his brother's prophetic office, but neither was he weak and passive when given authority. When he was commanded to speak for Moses to the Pharaoh, he did. He assumed his own responsibility and acted within his own calling. Aaron's example leads to my fifth point. Be yourself. In preparing this talk, an experience I had years ago outside my professional responsibilities returned again and again to my mind. This experience reiterated to me that I must accept who I am and recognize that despite my limitations, I can be of service to the Lord. Several years ago, we visited the areas where my husband served his mission in North Carolina. Our first Sunday was spent in Whiteville, North Carolina. As we approached the brand new chapel of this branch and the doors of the church house opened, our car was surrounded by my husband's beloved friends. Yet even in excitement, I noticed that one lady did not approach us. As I went into Release Society, this woman sat down next to me. Then when we started to sing the opening song, she leaned in very close. This would not have been a problem except for the fact that I have a horrible singing voice. So the closer she leaned in, the further I leaned the opposite way and the softer I sang. Finally, I was doing no more than mouthing the words. This whole scenario was repeated during the closing song. Then as we entered the small chapel for sacrament meeting, this dear woman came and sat right next to me again. She was on one side and my daughter Lynn was on the other. As we started to sing the opening song, Lynn and I carried out a a routine we did every Sunday. Lynn was just learning to read, and so we would bend our heads low to the songbook, and I would point at each word as we sang it. As we did this, my new friend also buried her head in our songbook. I could not imagine what was going on, but I decided to discontinue my lip-syncing and to sing. As was typical, every time Lynn would get a word correct, she would beam with pride and I would pat her on the back. My new friend did the same thing, carefully studying the words as I pointed to them and listening to what I was singing. At times she would get a word correct, and just like my daughter would smile up at me, and I would pat her on the hand. By this time I understood. My friend didn't care what my voice sounded like. All she needed was someone who could read and who cared enough to help her read the words as well. At that moment, the Lord didn't need a member of the Tabernacle Choir to sit next to this new convert. I would do.
One of the great ironies in my life right now is that my ward calling, despite what I have just told you, is primary chorister. And although the primary children have not yet been able to teach me to sing, they have taught me over and over again what it means to be true to yourself. They are eager to talk about their answered prayers, to recount faith-building stories, to encourage us all to do better and to share their testimonies. My testimony is strengthened each week by their pure and humble messages. As sons and daughters of God, each one of us has the ability and the obligation to testify and defend the work of the Lord. I beg you not to lean away or drop your voice in these situations. Rather, without pretense, stand in your own shoes, paying close attention to what is needed around you, and willingly respond. Remember the admonition of James. But be you doers of the word and not hearers only. Doing is what I would like to address in my final principle. As spokespeople for this university, which all of us clearly are, we must recognize that our actions speak louder than our words. In urging us to be people of integrity, President Samuelson has asked us, faculty, staff, and students, to be familiar with and endorse behaviorally and philosophically BYU's guiding documents, including the Honor Code. Each of us in being here today has agreed to follow President Samuelson's admonition. At this point, since we have already committed to live the Honor Code, it is now a matter of personal integrity. And because your integrity is valued and respected by those within and without our campus community, a violation of that integrity has the potential of becoming front-page news. People often ask me, Don't you think it's unfair BYU students live in such a fishbowl? No, I don't think it is unfair. I think it is reality, and I think it is a reality that each one of us will live with for the rest of our lives. Wherever you reside, work, and serve, you will be watched simply because you are an alumnus of Brigham Young University. As a spokesperson for this university, you have tremendous opportunities before you. May you embrace the opportunities that await you as you represent the principles that BYU has built upon. Ye are the light of the world, the Savior said in the Sermon on the Mount. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The light spoken of by our Savior shines from you this very moment. It is a light Naomi Schaefer-Riley, who is now an editor for the Wall Street Journal, felt when she visited our campus the week of September 11, 2001. Naomi came to our campus while writing a book on religious universities. BYU was the first campus that she visited. Let me read to you just a few comments from her book published last year titled God on the Quad. I began the first formal interviews for this book on September 10, 2001. The next day, 2,000 miles from home, I sat on the edge of my hotel bed, looking out over the strip malls to the treeless mountains beyond, wondering more than anything else about how to get home. Home for me is Blue America. I have lived in four states, all in the Northeast. I attended two secular colleges and grew up with a sense that religion, while socially beneficial and that it provided people with a moral compass they might not otherwise have, was not true. 
In other words, I had already expected to feel distinctly out of place on these campuses, and the events of that Tuesday morning only intensified the feeling. Over the next week, the students at Brigham Young tried to welcome me into their lives. While national tragedies tend to bring out the best in many people, the first representatives of the missionary generation I encountered could not have made a greater impression upon me. Their kindness and compassion, their civic-mindedness, their understanding and interest in national and international affairs, the quiet comfort they were able to find in their faith, and their ability to relate to this stranger in their midst gave me cause for optimism. Since she visited us, Naomi has gone on to be a defender of religious diversity in higher education in America. In an article this summer in USA Today, Naomi wrote, Schools with strong faith identities with strict behavioral codes, such as the Evangelical Wheaton College outside of Chicago, Brigham Young University, and the Catholic Thomas Aquinas College near Los Angeles, are not succeeding despite their religious mission, but because of it. Naomi's positive words are the direct result of her association with you. Have I convinced you of the power you have as spokespeople for this university and for the Lord's work? Just as Moses and Aaron and Esther spoke for their people, you serve as a spokesperson for the students and graduates of BYU and all those who believe in the work of this university. In so doing, do not be afraid. Seek and recognize the Lord's support. Prepare yourself, but do not go beyond the bounds of your knowledge, understanding, and authority. Be yourself, and never forget that actions speak louder than words. President Hinckley has counseled us that we of this generation are the end harvest of all that has gone before. It is not enough, he warns, to simply be known as a member of this Church. A solemn obligation rests upon us. Let us face it and work at it, he says. It is my testimony that you will not be alone as you strive to fulfill President Hinckley's challenge. Our Father in Heaven will guide you, help you, and support you. He does not want you to put your light under a bushel but on a candlestick where it cannot be hid. You are His spokesperson. And for that, knowing that my job is shared by 30,000 others, I am indeed grateful. May each of us live our lives in accordance with the assignment and the opportunities before us is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Authentically Embracing the Gospel with thoughts from Scott Swafford and Carrie P. Jenkins. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.